Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Thank you, Sean, and good morning, Mercy Commons. Uh, This is such a privilege for me because we get to open God's Word and we come on a Sunday morning because we're expectant. We're expectant that God wants to speak to us. We're expectant that God has something for us. And each of us had sort of, you know, our normal, regular week this week, right? Day in, day out, work, clean. Um, Maybe you're caring for kids, whatever you're doing. But God's word is meant to speak to us. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we get to open God's word and just expect that God has something for us this morning. And I'm excited. Um, I don't know what communication looks like for you in your home, uh, in your family. Maybe you don't have a family and you're by yourself, so maybe it's communication with friends or in your life group. Um, But in my home, um, my son Ansel, he's sitting there this morning, uh, he loves to communicate with pictures and images. Any of you guys like that? Um, especially when he's trying to communicate about something emotional, it's really difficult to explain, right? He'll say, "Ah, it's kind of like this. Um, And you've probably heard expressions like, I feel like I got hit by a train, right? That's kind of one of those expressions. Or, I'm boiling with anger. Um, Ansel will use these types of pictures and a lot of other really colorful language in our family. It's it's really fun. Um, But it can actually be really helpful for him as the communicator, but then also for the listener who's trying to understand. It can be really helpful, right? Um, This morning's passage centers around an image for us. And it centers around a metaphor of an anchor, and implicitly with this anchor, it's a ship that is tethered to an anchor. And I just wonder if the author's intent is to really fix a powerful idea in the hearer's mind this morning uh, and uh, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. It's not just, we're not just taking in new information this morning, data that we're processing. Uh, we're talking about the use of a metaphor for the purpose of influencing emotion this morning. I really believe God wants to move us emotionally. So in our series, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, right? And uh, we've been learning about the audience of this book. It's a letter written to Jewish converts of, to Christianity who were facing enormous pressure. Uh, and the pressure was uh, they've turned to Christ, but the pressure is going back to living under the law. They had to endure really difficult struggle in this season Um, suffering, sometimes publicly exposed to reproach, affliction, even the plundering of their property. And they seem to have withstood the first wave of this persecution joyfully, it says. But with each new wave of persecution, it's getting harder for the people. Um, And they begin to feel the cost of discipleship to Jesus. Like a ship at sea, there was a danger for the church to be drifting anchorless, to get caught in the storms of their circumstance and lose heart. Um, And this takes us into our text this week. Nick preached last week on chapter 6, the beginning of 6, and this verse was in his passage, verse 11 of Hebrews, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope, and here it is, until the end. 
The writer of the book wants to help the church to remain, remain faithful until the end. He knows that they are journeying toward an eternal destination while staring some really severe trials in the face. Church, we're on a journey this morning. Um, and we're on, you know, t- to use, use the metaphor of our passage, we're on this voyage. We're heading to an eternal destination. And the question for us this morning is, what does it take to hold fast? What does it take to hold fast? How, how do we um, hold on till the end? What does it take to hold fast to the end? And, you know, thinking about my life group this morning um, and, and throughout this week, I was thinking about my friend who's had really deep um, back pain, months-long back pain, without any hope of a change. How does he hold on until the end? How do my friends um, who lost a loved one way too early in life hold on and continue to trust the God who says he's going to be with them? How do my friends in India hold fast when their lives are in danger every week through persecution, the threat of persecution? How do they trust the God who says he's going to be faithful to them? Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you've been hurt in the past by church leaders this morning and you're feeling confused about faith. Maybe you're cruising along and maybe things in this world um, just seem a bit more attractive than the life of following Jesus this morning. I don't know where you guys are at this week. Uh, People have been asking me this morning, "How, how was your week? And I said, oh, it was good, it was good. But when I actually stopped, I was like, actually... It's been kind of tough this week. I felt emotionally weighty this week for for a number of reasons. How do I hold fast to the end? We're in this current. We're on this voyage, and the current of life is moving really swiftly. How do we keep from drifting is the question we're going to ask this morning. How do we hold on? What do we hold on to? And is there someone or something holding on to us? I believe God has an incredible word for us this morning. I want to dive into our passage. Uh, Chapter 6 of Hebrews, verses 13 through 20 is what we're going to read this morning from the ESV. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. Sorry, I lost my place there. A hope that enters into the inner place. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to take this passage this morning in three steps. We've got to start by looking at the promise. What was the promise? Who was the promise for? 
And then we're going to look at the promise giver and finish with this incredible mercy, uh, this incredible metaphor about the anchor of our souls. So we're introduced to the supporting character, Abraham, in our text this morning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, that's our supporting character. And uh, Abraham was a man born 2,000 years before Christ. He was a 10th generation descendant of Noah. And scripture tells us that Abraham uh, was a native of Ur. It was a major urban port city in Mesopotamia. Um, on the Persian Gulf. That's where he was from. And Joshua 24, 2 tells us Abraham's father was a worshiper of idols. So they weren't following God. Um, and it's likely that Abraham and his family would have followed suit. So they were serving other gods. And God came to him, we read in Genesis 12, and speaks to him and he says this, Go from your country, Abraham, you and your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you probably know how the story unfolds of Abraham, right? 25 years later, God came to him again and he'd uh, become the father of a multitude of nations, God tells him, that kings would come through his line and that Sarah, his wife, would bear him a son. God says that they should call his name Isaac. And God would establish his covenant with Abraham and his offspring throughout generations for an everlasting covenant. And Isaac, the promised heir of the covenant, was born. But God asked Abraham to offer him up, right? You guys remember that story? For Abraham to kill him as a sacrifice to the Lord, God was testing Abraham's heart, but already had a plan, a way out for Isaac to live. And toward the end of Abraham's life, God comes to him again and, and says in Genesis 22, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the star in the skies and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So the promise of Abraham included land, it included offspring, it included a blessing to Abraham and it included a blessing of all the nations of the earth through Abraham. So back in our story this morning, why is the author of Hebrews weaving this into our text this morning uh, a 2,000-year-old dead man's story and his family? The author of Hebrews is reaching back to the promises made to Abraham, the blessing of all the nations, and is connecting them straight to the recipients of this text and then on to us here this morning at Mercy Commons, here in Fullerton in the 21st century. The promise of blessing is for us this morning. Know then that it is those of faith, the apostle says in Galatians 3, who are of the sons of Abraham. So now, we're, now this, this, this passage in Genesis is being connected to us, the promise. And the, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We are the people of faith. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is us here, the people of faith, Mercy Commons. Jesus Christ is the conduit of the blessing to all who believe. This has incredible implications for us this morning. So listen for a moment what the promise means to us today. Through Jesus, we're promised a new heart and a new spirit put within us. Our hearts of stone giving way to hearts of flesh. That's a prophecy from Ezekiel. The promise includes forgiveness of sins, eternal, internal renewal of the heart, and intimate abiding with God, the God of the universe. And here in the book of Hebrews alone, we learn that the promise includes in chapter 4, a throne of grace where we can receive mercy and grace. Chapter 7, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, we're promised an eternal redemption that is secured. Chapter 10, God remembers our transgressions no more. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Chapter 11, we have the promise of rising again to a better life after death. Chapter 12, we're promised that God takes every pain in our lives and turns it for our good. Chapter 12, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Chapter 13, we're promised a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. Friends, our passage this morning was written that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And what is set before us is the promises that we just looked at. So in this first part, we spent our time unpacking who Abraham is, what the promise entails, why we should care this morning. We discovered that the promise is not just for Abraham, but it's for us. And the promise that we've been given has been given much more meaning through Christ and what he accomplished. The promise is actually our hope that we hold on to. The hope is, is what we pursue with earnestness, as it said uh, in, verse, in verse 11. But now we're going to make a shift and we're going to get into the heart of the passage. Our passage actually centers around the promise giver. He's the central figure for us this morning in our story. Let's look at him a bit more in detail. So the first aspect of our, of our hero this morning is that God loves. Verse, verse 9 in our chapter 6 says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Beloved means dearly loved ones. In the midst of some of the rebukes that we found in, in our book so far, the author reminds the recipients of his love for them, but not only his love, the term beloved is an echo of the heart of God, the heart of the Father toward all of his people. The Apostle Paul helps us see this theme of God's love in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 because of the great love with which he, God, loved us even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Paul prays in chapter 3 of Ephesians that we might have strength to comprehend 
the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's love for us. In 1 John 4, the same word beloved starts starts that address. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Church, we are God's beloved this morning. But God also is the initiator. We see that in our passage this morning in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, God is the one who makes the promise. God approached an idol worshiper, Abraham and his family, and gave him an incredible vision of a life of blessing and fruitfulness. God initiates the blessing. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. It's God's work in Abraham first, and it's God's work in us first. But imagine how difficult um, it would have been for Abraham and his family to really hold on to that promise seriously. Uh, we learn in Scripture in Genesis that Abraham and his wife were old in age. Abraham was 75 years old when he received the promise, and Sarah was 65 years old. And it wasn't until 25 years later that God finally gave him the promise of a son through Abraham. So now they're really old. And Sarah was way past childbearing age, 90 years old, when Isaac was born. So we're talking about a promise that was given and a promise that would actually take multiple generations to fulfill. Abraham wasn't going to see it happen in his lifetime. He was going to see the beginnings of it. So this would have been really hard for him to hold on to. And we too are asked to suspend our desire to see the fullness of the promise because it won't be complete until the time of Christ returns to restore all things. To have to trust that God will complete the work in us and in building his church, the bride of Christ. And so here in our text, God knows the difficulty we would have in receiving such a a promise. And so he gives us a guarantee. Look at our passage in verse 16. For when people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He guaranteed it. John Calvin makes this observation. See how kindly God as a gracious father accommodates himself to our slowness to believe as he sees that we rest not on his simple word that he might more fully impress it on our hearts, he adds an oath. Isn't that great? God doesn't have to swear to Abraham. He's completely trustworthy, but he chooses to give Abraham a solid, a rock-solid guarantee because he's trying to convince Abraham and his heirs of the unchangeable nature of his promise. God swears by his own name. He swears on his own glory, which holds the greatest value in all the universe, much more so than any human value. God absolutely guarantees the fulfillment of the promise. So God loves and approaches us, his dearly loved ones. God is the initiator in his love for us. He first pursues and initiates with us. We heard that God guarantees his promise. He graciously accommodates our slowness to believe. And fourthly, God desires to convince Listen to this in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, God desired. Think about that. The God of heaven and earth, 
The God of heaven and earth desires and wants us to get it deep down how trustworthy he is. He really wants us to get it. God intentionally is trying to leave us no, no doubt, no doubt in his promises. We have a God who's gone through great lengths to convince us of his love. Isn't that amazing this morning? Finally, we see that God's purpose is unchangeable. Some of you may know that Madeline's grandfather, he's now passed, but he lived to be just shy of 103 years old. A long life. He was born in 1901, so right at the turn of the century. Think about that. And he died in 2003 when Madeline and I were married. Um, so think about, imagine the life that he saw between the 19, you know, 1900s and, and 2000. It's just incredible. When I, when I think about it, it just blows my mind. And I, and I wonder if he ever got... Like, man, life is changing rapidly. I mean, think about it. He grew up with horse and buggy. That's what he started off with, and he saw the birth of the automobile. Um, you know, he um, saw the airplane travel take off and provide access to the world. He witnessed the first talking motion picture and how television became the centerpiece of the American home. Uh, he witnessed the first landing of the moon and the atomic bomb and world wars. He saw the birth of mobile phones and toward the end of his life, the explosion of the internet. We're talking about a society in rapid transition and he witnessed it all. I, I wonder if he felt like the changeable nature of the world would just leave him behind. Sometimes I feel that in my profession. My profession is just rapidly changing. In our text this morning, we're talking about something that is unchanging, completely unchanging. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, it's unchangeable. We have a God whose purpose is as unchanging as his character is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it says in Hebrews chapter 13. This should bring us great comfort this morning, friends. The God who gives us incredible promises, like the ones we read about, of undeserved mercy and grace, the promise of rising again to a better life after death. This God is pursuing us and initiating with us out of the great storehouse of his love. He desires to demonstrate his trustworthiness to us and helps us with a guarantee that will sustain us to the end. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is our God this morning. Oh, and now we get to one of the most hope-inducing passages that the church has feasted on and depended on for the last 2,000 years, the metaphor of the anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. We have this, and what does this refer to? It's our hope in the unchangeable character of his purpose, our hope in God's guaranteed and promised blessing that we can count on beyond all doubt. This is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Let's think about the anchor for a moment. What does an anchor signify? If, if, if I'm a ship and I have an anchor on board, what does that mean? It means that there's probably going to be storms, right? Um... Unless there were the possibility of a raging threat, why would I have an anchor on the ship? John Owen, a Puritan 
uh, from the 1500s said that an anchor was principally of use at two seasons. In storms and tempests, when the art and skill of the mariners are overcome by the fierceness of the wind and sea so that they cannot steer the ship in its right course nor preserve it from rocks or shells, then is an anchor cast out which will hold fast and retain the ship in safety against all outward violence. But then there's a second reason an anchor is useful. When ships are in their harbor, that they may not be tossed down and, and up and down at uncertainty, that men may attend their occasions and not be drifting, driven to and fro with every wind. An anchor is cast to keep the vessel steady unto its posture. He goes on to draw the connection from the anchor metaphor to us as believers. We are, all who follow Jesus, exposed to storms and tempests in this world. Sometimes we're right in the middle of a fierce storm. You might be in a fierce storm this morning. With sails shattered by the strong wind, overpowering waves, our anchor is let down to grab onto that which is secure and sure. Sometimes we find ourselves in the harbor. Maybe you're in the harbor this morning, conducting business and trade, here our anchor is down too to keep our posture upright. We should expect storms and look for them. After all, we have an anchor on board. But here's an interesting twist to this metaphor. Um, sailors throw their anchor downward, right? It goes down, um, breaks the veil of the, the water's uh, surface, and goes down to grab hold of something solid, right? Solid on the, on the ocean or the sea floor. But our anchor in our, in our chapter here this morning is, is said to do something different. It enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's a, that's a weird metaphor. What's the writer of Hebrews getting at here? Well, the inner place is a reference to the Jewish temple, which was split into various sections within the temple, um, split by these curtains that would separate the different areas into degrees of holiness. And when Jesus breathed his last while hanging on the cross, Scripture tells us that the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Uh, and and it, it was the entrance to the Holy of Holies. And this is why this is important this morning for us. God's presence dwelt in that holiest of holy places. Behind the curtain, it says in our text, that's where the presence of God was. John Owen goes on to say, Our anchor goes within the veil of glory into the heights of heaven where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. So our anchor's not going downward. It's going up. Within the veil, therefore, is within and above these visible heavens, the place of God's glorious residence, the holy tabernacle not made with hands where the Lord Christ continueth to administer for his church. Our anchor friend, friends grabs onto the most solid thing there is, the person of Christ. Our immovable, unchanging, solid ground. Mercy Commons, at the start, we asked a few important questions. We said the current of life is moving really swiftly and there's the danger of drifting. How do we keep from drifting? How do we hold on? What do we hold on to and is someone or something holding on to us? Ben, you can come up. 
as I finish here. I, I want us to look at one final story to help us answer these questions. The story of Edward Mote, a pastor and hymn writer living in the 1800s. Edward had a friend whose wife was really, really sick. She was close to death. And his friend would sing songs to his wife um, as she was laying there because it really brought her comfort. And so on this one night, Edward Mote was going over to visit his friends and they had misplaced the hymn book for some reason. They couldn't find it. And God had given Edward something to write down, some stanzas to write down on a scrap piece of paper that morning. And he had it in his pocket and he said to his friend, hey, do you mind if I bring this out and we sing this together to your wife? And they began singing these words, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he continued to sing until they came to the verse and these words, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Chad Bird, a pastor and Old Testament scholar, had this reflection. It's one of the strangest and most beautiful images in Scripture. Christ, our priest, as an anchor within the Holy of Holies. This man who is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone is united to us inextricably. He is as close to us as heat is to fire, as wet is to water. He has chained us to himself in a bond that cannot be broken. While offering up his own body for us on the cross, he was thrown upward, sailed through the firmament, passed through the celestial courts, ripped into the veil that hung between heaven and earth, and was lodged as a bloody anchor into the gold-plated Ark of the Covenant before the Father's throne of grace. Christ, our priest, has anchored himself in heaven's holiest place. And because we are joined to him, we are anchored there as well. As he holds fast to the Father, so he holds fast to us. And every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because nothing can unanchor him from us or us from him. No storms of sin, no gales of guilt, no floods of fear. We may be tossed about, but our anchor holds. We will struggle, church, we will doubt. But thanks be to God, we are not the anchor. Christ is. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not our own fidelity, not our own piety, not our own anything. There is no Jesus and, there is only Jesus And he is more than enough. Lord, we thank you so much that we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We are not the anchor, Jesus. You are our anchor. And Lord, we've all come to this place from different different journeys this week. We have. Some of us encouraged, but some of us are discouraged. Some of us are in the storm. Some of us are in the harbor. Father, I pray that you would help us to flee to this image of the anchor. Put it before us. I think of of, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Look to the... Uh, looking to Jesus, the, the, the perfecter of our faith. We want to look to you, our anchor, this morning again. And Lord, we pray that you would take us into the week, moment by moment, reminding us of you being our sure and steadfast anchor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, John Mark. Appreciate that. We're going to uh, we're going to respond as is our custom uh, with communion. But first, I I uh, I was just struck with uh, just the thought of as John Mark was walking through kind of his points when he landed on the love of the love of God, and I'm just and he spoke of God as a father and and we're speaking of Christ as this anchor and there's uh, there's a part of me that wonders if if there might be somebody in here that just doesn't know what that feels like when you hear about the love of God it's like okay cool that sounds like a concept i don't actually know what that means maybe you've never come to faith in Christ maybe god is just kind of a concept or an angry idea or well, i don't know what God might be to you, but he's a person, and he's come to each and every person that's here that is, has put their faith in him, and you can do that this morning. You can experience the love of God, not just an idea, but the actual love of God for you, and it doesn't require anything of you at all. Uh, God loves you right where you are, not as you should be, because no one in this building is as they should be. He still loves you anyway. The passage that John Mark pointed us to is from Ephesians, and I just want to read this. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, we were apart from him. We didn't know him. We had no idea about him. Even then, God loved you. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that God loves you. I'm going to do something that we don't normally do this morning. If you want to join me with your heads bowed, eyes closed, I just want to pray and give someone that might be here, an opportunity to respond to the love of God. Father, I thank you that you're here to remind all of us of your love for us. You're here to remind all of us of your faithfulness towards us, your kindness, your goodness, your strength. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for the people that may be here that just don't know. They don't know you. They don't know you yet. I pray, Father, that you would help them to take steps and for them to understand a bit more of who you are and your love for them. If that's you, if you're somebody that's feeling a little bit of a tug on your own heart and your own mind and you're wondering if this is, this is real, is this too good to be true? You're feeling, in a sense, the love of God drawing you. That's a first step. And I'd encourage you, I'd, I'd love to see your hand, I'd love to be able to talk with you and just to pray with you. If that's you, would you, would you raise your hand? All eyes are bowed and heads, heads, heads closed. Is there anyone in here this morning that feels that way? For the rest of us, for the for the rest of us, we're going to go to the table now. This, the band's going to go back into uh, going to go back into a song. There's a table in the back, two tables to my left, to your right. 
want you to go and grab the elements and come back to your, come back to your seat. We're going to take communion together, and then I have a couple of prompts for people that might need to receive prayer. And if that is you and you didn't have the courage to raise your hand, that's okay. Come and, come and, come and, come and find me, will you? I would love to, I'd love to pray with you and talk with you. But for the rest of us, let's grab the elements and come back to your seats. We are so thankful. We are so thankful. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for the tangible reminder that we hold in our hands of the very solid hope that we lay hold of in our hearts, that you have died, you have been raised again, and you're seated next to the Father, interceding for us now, and you will return with the fullness of your kingdom, not in imaginary land, not in fairy tale land, in this reality. We thank you for your body, Jesus, that was broken for us. We take this in remembrance of you. Lord, we take the cup and we're reminded that all of our sin is paid for. That you you, you shed your blood, you spilled your blood for the fullness of the forgiveness of our sins, the sins we have committed, the sins that are even yet to be committed. You have paid the price that we could not pay, and you love us, and you did this. You did this gladly. You, you saw the joy that was set before you, even though the cross you despised, the joy of receiving us and doing the will of your Father, you and so we take this in remembrance of you. The band is going to continue to play. We're going to go ahead and dismiss. But before we do, I just want to encourage you this morning, if there's something that as John Mark was preaching, maybe you could use a fresh reminder of the anchor that you have. Maybe you're facing a storm right now and you, you, you need some support. We all are there. We all are there at different times. I want to encourage you, there's people to my left, to your right, that are available to pray for you. So please don't leave without, uh, without getting a little prayer. For the rest of us, we're going to be out back. There's coffee, there's donuts, and uh, plenty of conversation. We love you. Thanks for being here. Go out and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.